So, good morning again, everyone. Any questions? Topics? Shangupal? There's something I've been wondering about. And I've met some people, and my mom met some people that they're kind of like, to me, feel a bit new agey. They're into like psychic reading and channeling or like color meditation. And this one guy like sees ghosts. And I, I never know how to relate to that from a Krishna conscious perspective. Like how to see that world they're seeing. Uh, do you mean the world that they're in or the world that they say they're in? than they're experiencing. I mean, you know, you have a new age community of people mm. use, you know, a broad term. And then they, they say that they have certain mm. experiences as well, which, which you're referring to both. More to the experiences. Experiences. They, they have, how, uh-huh. how, how real are those? Mm-hmm. Well, of course... You have to judge everything on individual basis, but in general, um, yeah, I wrote about it in that in an article in Ananda magazine. How many years ago, I was a young man interested in meditation, and, and it was a problem for me because whoever I asked about meditation had less than a very definitive and concrete answer as to how to actually meditate, and I wanted to have a little bit more of a, a way of determining whether my experiences were real or imaginary and so forth. And and I wrote that today that there's a similar problem, it's different, but it's there's, there's a problem as well with regards to people who want to meditate and practice spiritual life. But the problem is that if you ask today how to meditate, you'll get so many answers. Too many answers. Because there are all types of newfangled ideas and spiritual entrepreneurs out there and whatnot. So, one thing in general, other than your specific question in this, this regard, I think it's important to note that if a path is genuinely spiritual, then it has to be ego-effacing. And many of the, the paths, if you will, that people identify themselves with are uh, ego-enhancing rather than ego-effacing. And there's also a blur between what I've referred to as horizontal development and, and vertical development or confusion in which horizontal development, which means developing an integrated personality, a healthy body, um, psychological balance, and so forth, this is equated with spiritual growth. It doesn't have to be disconnected to spiritual growth, but spiritual growth can go on independently of it, although ideally, with that in place as a foundation, again, as a horizontal growth, you have a broad base from which to firmly plant your two feet on the ground as you attempt then to jump up and touch the stars of the spiritual sky. Um, So that's best, whereas if you don't have that 
broad base and you're not a very developed, integrated, balanced person. You may have to jump with only one foot and when that reaches high, you may fall down off your feet altogether. That was, of course, in a dynamic sense, the whole idea of Varnashram, which in terms of specifics is, is difficult, if not impractical, to put in place, but the spirit of it. Varnashram, for those of you who don't know, means it's the socio-religious system of, uh, of ancient India that's mentioned throughout the text that really, while it talks about different types of people and different occupations for different types of people and, and whatnot, what it's really getting at is trying to situate people in such a way that they're really materially well-balanced and comfortable in their bodies so that they will be better suited for going beyond the limitations of their bodies and their minds, rather than trying to do that from being out of balance materially to begin with. So, the two can be related in an, in an, in an ideal scenario. Then you have both, you have the encouragement of, of horizontal growth for the sake of vertical growth, ultimately. But, as I say today, there's a lot of confusion and sometimes horizontal growth is equated with spiritual growth. And just like I was saying at our monastery, and we, we, we live a very, very nice, relatively self-sufficient lifestyle, organic lifestyle in the forest, our own fruits and vegetables grown, and uh, we build the buildings ourselves, and we have our own cows, and, and so forth. And so people in in the community, they look just looking at that aspect of our lives, they think we're spiritual. They equate that with being spiritual. Whereas, it's something more rare in today's world, especially in, in the United States, but it's something that was going on all over the United States 50, 60, 70, 100, 200 years ago. It didn't make people necessarily spiritual. So, it's important to distinguish between the two, and, and as I say, a real spiritual, an authentic spiritual path, if it's going to lead us anywhere in the direction of, of transcendence, if it's going to be helpful, let us say. Some things can be helpful, Rupa Goswami says, some detachment, some knowledge can be helpful. Um, then the path has to be ego-effacing, not ego-enhancing. So... A lot of things out there in the, in, on the term New Age is rather ego-enhancing and, and, um, and sometimes deals with the kind of things that you're talking about, which are more like subtle material realities, dreams and, and ghosts and shamans and, and these types of things. And so you want to know how to relate to their experiences. Um, a lot of times, and again, I can't answer because each case is specific, but in general, a lot of times, they can be pretty much dismissed, in my experience. The experiences that people speak about, I, I tend to dismiss them because I I found one of the uh, characteristics of our parampara, our uh, lineage, particular lineage, as it came from Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta and, 
and um, through my Guru Maharaj as well, that very much discouraged imagination. And what I saw in contrast to that oftentimes in the spiritual marketplace was an encouragement of, of imagination on the part of the teachers, where they would encourage the students to imagine almost their way into spiritual experience and so forth. Whereas Prabhupada was very much fond of discouraging that when, for example, the classic example is when one of his disciples told him that, Prabhupada, I'm chanting, and whenever I chant, I see a blue light comes and surrounds me. And so what did Prabhupada say? He said, keep chanting, it'll go away. Whereas someone else might have said, very good, that's, that's Krishna or something. I've seen that kind of thing. And, um, and so that kind of encouragement is, is, is out and about, and that's very detrimental, actually. It, it makes people very superstitious and uh, wishful in, uh, and imaginative in, in their thinking and so forth, and much less critical in their thinking and rational. And you know, I'd like to think that spiritual life has a foundation in reason, although it certainly transcends the limits of, of reason. We don't like to think that it's unreasonable, but to use another term, trans-rational, it picks up where reasoning leaves off. So there should be a good amount of reasoning to arrive at its pursuance and the kind of practice that will, um, will bear tangible spiritual fruits. After all, just in a simple sense, I was thinking this morning how love gives people a reason to live. Think of it like that. Love gives us a reason to live. So the relationship between love and reason is very interesting. Love ultimately transcends reason, but it includes good reasoning within itself as well. So less well-reasoned and imaginative spirituality is common and we shouldn't give it much credence. And although a number of the things that you talked about that your your friends or your acquaintances speak of in terms of experiencing subtle realities like ghosts and channeling and these types of things and so forth may exist on, on some level, it's usually unlikely that the people that talk about them are doing much more than, than imagining them. There is a lady in, uh, in the community of uh, Santa Rosa, which is about an hour from us, where uh, Agni Dev has a, some of you know, has his Govinda's restaurant. And I go there once a month to a yoga studio. It's called Evolution Yoga and give a talk. And a number of the people who are coming now, they come in consistently, are followers of a an offshoot or a um, like us in relation to ISKCON, or another branch or something like that, uh, of the uh, Ananda Marg Society. You might have heard of them. They've been in Finland for for quite some time, and um, so the, there's a lady that's in charge of it there, and she claims to be channeling the founder who's passed away. He's a Bengali fellow quite some, some time ago. 
And so that was the popular place for them to go, but now many of them are coming to my lectures and regularly and finding that this is a square meal there and that I'm forcing them to be very reasonable and, and, and think critically about their spirituality and, and so forth. It's not that much to her liking, I don't think, but then again, she doesn't, doesn't attend either. So even amongst them, one of, one of my students was talking with one or two of them and or one of them and said, oh, so-and-so is channeling Baba or something like that. And, and so the devotee wanted to say something, but you know, didn't. But then the lady who said it gave an opening as if, what do you think about that? And so uh, my student said, well, you know, I'm not, so sh- I'm not so sure about that. And then she just chimed in, yeah, I was wondering about that <laughs> too. <laughs> so, um, so, so there's a lot... Uh, that uh, is quite imaginary out there. And that's one, one thing to think about. And then if you want to think about those realms of ghosts and, and so forth and where do they fit in and whatnot in terms of uh, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, they're not that important, but the mind and the, the, the mental world is rather subtle and and includes quite a few more possibilities than the physical realm. I've often said that if you wanted to, for example, carry everything out of this room physically in one, one try, it would be difficult to pick everything up, right? But mentally, you could take everything. It might take a little time, but if you could collect everything that was here in your mind and remember it, if not everything, a lot more you could take with you than you could physically. So this is just to give an example how the subtle realm of mind is much more spacious and accommodating. Many more possibilities exist there. Here in the physical plane, the waking state, you can experience gold and you can experience a mountain, but you can experience a gold mountain, a golden mountain. But in the mind to mental realm, you can. So there are many, many possibilities there. It's quite, quite vast. And so some people like to, and there are methods to explore that, so to speak. And if they're, if they're effective, those paths, then people can experience you know, different types of subtle experiences and, and um, uh, beings and ghosts and, and so on. But again, we shouldn't construe it to be spiritual or desirable. And in fact, it's it's potentially much more bewildering and uh, and a distraction. I've met people who are more psychically um, aware. It's like some people are fat, some people are thin, some people are tall, some people are short, some people are very intelligent, some people are not as intelligent, some people are psychically more adept than others. That's not anything more special, and certainly not more spiritual than than that. But because that those experiences in, in the psychic dimension are so different from everyday experience, then they're easily misconstrued to be spiritual and and desirable and um, and so in my limited experience of and I, oh I have some in meeting with these kinds of people I I found them often to be very much distracted and difficult to reel in, so to speak, and, and focus them on what's actually important and spiritual. There was a period of time after Prabhupada left that I was 
meeting a lot of these people because uh, myself, another devotee who recently passed away, his name was uh, Bhakti Tirtha Maharaj, we were going, trying to sell full sets of Prabhupada's books to people. This was our task. And so, in order to do this, I came up with the idea of going to these psychic fairs. And uh, then we, we would go to the psychic fair and there would be all these people who bent spoons and you know, did charts and read your aura and all kind of things like that. And they were all assembled there, marketing their their psychic abilities. And so we had a table with all of Prabhupada's books on it. And we did a, we told them what we were doing a raffle. And that, um, and so, the <laughs> so we asked if you want to enter, you put your name and the address, of, put it in the box. And then at the end, we're going to pick out a certain number of names and those people will have the opportunity to get the books at no cost other than the, the cost of, you know, minimal cost of shipping and handling, something like that. And the books, you know, they're they're very well done and so forth. So they were, we had a big poster, I think it had a price, astronomical price for them, which wasn't really um, astronomical by normal book trade uh, standards and so forth, but because we printed them at, in huge volumes. We had them at a cheap price. So to spend, for example, two or three dollars for the Bhagavad Gita with color pictures and you know, a thousand pages and so forth was a really good deal. So at any rate, that's what we did. And then, and then of course, we didn't tell them how many names we'd pick out, but all the names we picked out. Everybody was a winner. And then we we visited everybody afterwards. We went to the hostess of my idea. We. Were, We'd call them and make an appointment and go to their home. And then we'd tell them, you know, remember you saw us at the psychic fair, you know, well, this was one of the names we picked out of the hat, and and you get the opportunity to get the books at this really great price. And so then we would go to the house again and bring all the books, and they would look through them and so forth. So I met a lot of them at that time, and um, they were hard. We, we had a good kind of plan to sell them books. We, we sold a few that way, but, but they were really hard to impress with any of the philosophy. I don't mean to impress, but I mean to, to, to put in place in their thinking and in their heart any foundational stone that would actually be useful for building a genuine spiritual life. It was difficult. They had so much going on in their imagination and in their, in their experience, even, that... Uh, it was difficult to penetrate, and I came to the conclusion that they were less receptive and so forth. And many of them had very, very bad habits also. They were psychic, and uh, and some of them were genuinely very psychically awake, but they couldn't stop smoking and drinking and, and, uh, and so forth. So well, it's not very uh, desirable and... Um, no, as I said, I can't say what your friend's experience is, whether it's imaginary or, or it's real. But there are things to experience, much more to experience than than perhaps is in the realm of your immediate experience in, in this lifetime. All types of subtleties. We know we tend to be pretty rational in the Western world, and and the tendency is to move away from these types of things, superstition, so forth, especially with the with modern medicine which was really like the biggest ghost, you know, buster of the 
you know, modern modern world, because it was very tangible. That uh, by taking penicillin, for example, or some antibiotic, then the, the bubonic plague or something like that would go away. Actually, whereas going to the sorcerer or the wizard or shaman or witch doctor or whatnot didn't bring about the same effect. So this very much um, is a real milestone in uh, terms of rationality for the world. And it's just been moving, moving more and more away from that. And then the unfortunate thing, of course, is that genuine spirituality tends to get lumped in with a lot of that. And, of course, genuine spirituality also is mostly, most people have contact with it only superficially or superficial expressions of it. And so that doesn't help. But uh, the interesting thing, of course, is that the rational world and scientifically, let's say, informed community in, in general is not that informed scientifically, because if they were, they would be much more open-minded, because um, it's, it's apparent the deeper you go into science, that the, the, the less that uh, we know, even by that, that approach. And while it may make people happy on some level and produce certain results like medicine and, and so forth, in and of itself, it doesn't have the capacity to fulfill us again. Love is the reason that we put up with life. <laughs> That's the reason for living. Yes? Maharaj, uh, what can we decide and do now, immediately, outside of our natural kuna and karma? Are there any such kind of things? What we can do? Yes. Well... Chanting Hare Krishna is outside of our guna and karma. That would be a good good start. But uh, for some reason, I think you must be talking about something else. No? Is uh, Krishna consciousness our karma? Oh, no. No. And uh, is uh, chanting Hare Krishna, is it our guna and karma? No. Chanting Hare Krishna is something that is... Uh, outside of our guna and karma. Guna and karma means, for those who don't know, of course, karma is a common term. It speaks about our present uh, predicament, how we're reaping the fruits of our past activities of exploitation on some level, and how thereby we're bound to material existence. And guna means the kind of qualities and uh, disposition that we have which is uh, as a result of our karmic implication. So, this is all about um, material bondage, guna and karma. And there's not much we can do to get beyond that. But, if we have the good fortune of divine intervention in our life, then it's possible. Therefore, we hear Narottam Thakur sings what? Goloketu premodhan hodinam sankirtan. Now, there's no guna and karma in Goloka, in Krishna Lila. In the Lila of Krishna, then there's a semblance of guna and karma, but it's all nirguna, all transcendental. So we hear from Narutam Thakur that this uh, Namsan Kirtan 
it comes from Goloka. So it's coming from beyond guna and karma and with a mission, so to speak. Krishna Nam has an agenda for those under the influence of guna and karma and his agenda is to take us out. So he's very, Nam Prabhu is, is very um, aggressive in, in a way. It is said that Krishna and Krishna's Leela are non-different. Krishna and Krishna's form are non-different. Krishna and Krishna's qualities are non-different. Krishna and Krishna's name are non-different. But about the name, something else is said. Not about the guna, not about the leela, not about the rupa, the form, the pastime, the qualities of Krishna, but about his name. Although one with him, there's one difference. The difference is that the name, while non-different from the named, from Krishna himself, you have to appreciate this point a little bit. Materially speaking, you can get it a little bit. Just like if you if someone does something and runs away, then you, you say, did you get his name? Because if you have his name, then you, you have the person. Or if you have their social security number, then you can get them. So, in a more profound sense, Krishna and his name are one and the same. He can be captured by his name. In the form of his name, he makes himself accessible. So the difference between Krishna's name and Krishna is in the form of his name, he's more uh, merciful. And that mercy takes the form of, of almost an aggressive campaign that doesn't care for any barriers. He goes there anyway. Just like we people, devotees, conduct Sankirtan of chanting Krishna out loud, then other people can hear. They weren't interested in attending the spiritual function, but the name has gone there anyway. And there's some benefit from that. So, Shidamarsh liked to say he doesn't care for high walls and locked doors. He told the story once of how two policemen in India were discussing, having a chat, and one fellow said to the other, You know, Captain, he said, it's a lucky thing for us that Krishna is a thief as it was known in Krishna's Leela that he was fond of stealing butter and yogurt and, and so many things, and being a bit mischievous. So the other said, what do, you, what do you mean by that? That's our whole problem. Here we are trying to organize the society and see that the laws are upheld, but the god of the society is a thief. So people have all excuse in the world for not being, for being a little dishonest. This is a problem for us. The other man said, no, no, I mean in this way that that uh, we're lucky that Krishna is a thief because a thief doesn't care for high walls and locked doors and that's what we have erected around our heart. We've locked it and sealed it and he doesn't care, he goes in there anyway. So he's a little aggressive with his mercy. And this kind of divine intervention and that gives us the possibility to act beyond the influence of guna and karma. And how does this Krishna Nam come to us? Well, in a general way it comes through devotees, as I said, who are chanting. And devotees are chanting under the guidance of another devotee, of a leading devotee, their Gurudev. And so it comes from the heart of a real devotee, this Krishna Nam, takes his seat there, and then comes up and dances on his tongue and goes to others' ears and into their hearts and 
and so forth. In this way, Krishna, through his name, distributes himself. And he's, as I say, a bit aggressive. So this is uh, divine intervention then. Otherwise, we're simply bound by guna and karma, moving accordingly. So, Maharas, uh, am I practicing a, a karma misra bhakti when I know that I am not a pure devotee? Chanting Hare Krishna is not karma misra bhakti. So, you should chant Hare Krishna with the ideal of going to Goloka. If you know, this Krishna Nam is very nice. It has come from Goloka. So I would like to chant so that I can be like those people in Goloka. If that's your ideal, if that's what you want, then it's not karma Mishra Bhakti. Now you may have material desires, and you may be still under the influence of guna and karma, but you have not made karma, or gyan for that matter, the object the desired result from your chanting. Do you understand? If we chant for good karma, if we chant in order to get material things, then the bhakti becomes covered, anabrita, by karma. If we chant for liberation, then it becomes covered by jnana. Sudha bhakti is, pure bhakti is bhakti that is not encumbered by the desire for karma, for improvement within the realm of karma, or, or for liberation. So the desire is what is important. You may, you may have material desires. You may desire liberation. You may desire material improvement, and that may factor into your chanting. Then your your bhakti is not pure. When you have no desire, nadanam, nadanam, nasundarim, kovitam ba, then your bhakti will be pure but still you can be on the path of pure devotion. That is the generosity of pure devotees, that they will include you on the path. By following them, by attaching yourself to such persons, wanting to be like them, then the, their generosity is that they include you on the path. They call you a Vaishnav, a Prakrita Vaishnav, a materialistic Bhakta, <laughs> or a Konishta Adhikari, something like that. That is their generosity. So, if we attach ourselves to an advanced devotee, the Krishna will naturally be attracted to us. If someone loves Krishna entirely, then then whoever likes that person, Krishna will naturally pay attention to them. This is love psychology. If you like someone, then whoever they like, you also, oh, you like him, I'm interested in him too. Think favorably of them. So this is the secret. Otherwise, to get Krishna's attention, that would be very difficult. Hmm? But if we can attach ourselves to someone who has Krishna's attention, then Krishna's attention will come to us. And we can be formally treading the path of Shuddha Bhakti with a view to become pure. Now, there are people that specifically pursue material results by doing bhakti, or liberation by doing bhakti, or mystic power by doing bhakti. That is a different type of person. Their bhakti is covered by these desires. Our bhakti should not be covered by that, although we may have other desires. In that sense, we may not be pure. We should associate with pure devotees and have the ideal, the philosophical understanding of what 
pure devotion is. Make that our ideal. Know how to go about it and pursue it. The fact that we have other desires that get in the way, that's understandable. You have to start somewhere. Does that help? Yes. What else? Yes. When you mentioned the term Kanistari Karyan, I remembered how one of, in one of our Jaivadharma meetings we ended up discussing the definition of the Kanistari Karyan because we found some different um, like standards or symptoms of such of that stage. So I was wondering how you would define it. And I was also thinking of all these stages in general. And do you find it important to try to kind of define whether someone is a Kanistadikari or a Maria Madikari? Is it, is it important to think about that kind of thing? Or mm -hmm. would, would it be better just to kind of try to respect everyone generally as a, an aspiring Vaishnava? It's important to make distinctions because there are real distinctions. And then the way in which we will honor will be dependent upon what type of devotee. Uh, if the devotee is a Kanishta Adhikari, then he or she will be honored in a particular way. If he or she is a Madhyamadhikari, then they'll be honored in a different way. If they're Uttamadhikari, the highest type of devotee, superlative devotee, They'll be honored in another way. It's not that Kanishta Adhikari shouldn't be honored. Any Adhikari for Bhakti, that is, means eligibility for Bhakti, capacity to engage in Bhakti, this is very honorable. One time, I'll tell you a story. One time, um, after Sridhar Maharaj left the world, then some of his students went to Pujapad promote Puri Goswami Maharaj and took shelter of him and took, uh, maybe they took, a couple took sannyas from him or something like that. And so, because of this and a couple other things, there was some, a little bit of um, miscommunication between the devotees in Sridhar Maharaj's mission and the devotees in Puri Maharaj's mission. And some of the Kanishta Adhikaris in Sridhar Maharaj's mission were upset that they went there to take sannyas rather than stay here and and so forth. And so it, it got a little bit heated. And um, Kanishta Adhikari means a neophyte, that's a beginner. And, um, and so at one point, one of the devotees from Sridhar Maharaj's group, they said, uh, well, Gurudev Sridhar Maharaj once said that Puri Maharaj is a Kanishta Adhikari. So, why should you go to him? And meanwhile, he's given his mission to Govinda Maharaj, so you should stay here. Something like this, they're arguing. Now, Puri Maharaj, he was uh, in charge of installing mostly all the deities in all of the moths, all of the monasteries of Bhakti Siddhanta, presiding over the, that kind of uh, ritual and so forth. And deity worship is very much identified with Kanishta Adhikari, where the Lord comes in a form that you can handle, to use Prabhupada's language. Whereas in the form of the, the name, which the Lord comes in a prominent way, it may be 
more difficult to take full advantage of the Lord's presence in His name. Sometimes we chant and we see the devotees, they fall asleep while chanting. But we don't find too many that fall asleep while offering Arctic to the deity or taking the prashadam of the deity and so forth. So it's a very friendly form of the Lord that that when the name brings us to a certain level, a certain point of purification, then the deity comes into our life to help us on that stage to take advantage of the name and go the distance. So because Puri Maharaj was doing that, once Sridhar Maharaj identified him with Kanishtadikari in relation to those activities. doesn't mean that he, he's saying, oh, he's just a Kanishtadikari, you should, shouldn't listen to him or anything like that. But this neophyte devotee, as they will sometimes, misconstrued and made this statement. So he said, oh, Puri Maharaj is Kanishtadikari. So that then came back to Puri Maharaj's mission. They're calling him, our Guru Dave, which is the neophyte. So this was, uh, so they became very upset and they went to Puri Maharaj and they said, that so-and-so there, that mob, they're, they're saying that you are, that Sridhar said that you are only Kanishta Adhikari. We cannot tolerate this. He said, oh, Sridhar has given me some Adhikari, some Vabhakti. I'm very lucky. Oh, Sridhar has considered me Kanishta Adhikari. Oh. So then we could see he was Uttamadhikari, highest devotee, to have such appreciation. You understand? For any eligibility for bhakti, that some devotee, a devotee of consequence, of spiritual standing, has seen fit to call me a devotee. Oh, then, I'm very, very lucky. This is the whole idea of the Kanishtarikari. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Vaishnava Jati Buddhi. The Vaishnava should not be considered in terms of birth or gunan karma or any of these things. But those who are still under the influence of gunan karma Advanced devotees extend the idea of devotee to them and call them materialistic devotees. It doesn't, it's like oxymoron. Materialistic devotees. <laughs> this is their, their kindness, their vision. So to be included within their vision, their broad vision, encouraging vision, that's our good fortune. So we think of it with some disdain. That, oh, they're just Kanishtadikaris. Why should we, if we think of them like that, then we won't honor them. No, they should be honored also. Indeed, Mahaprabhu Chaitanya Dev said, anyone who chants Krishna Nam should be honored, albeit some of them from a distance, but they should be honored. Because their, their activities may not be conducive, they may not be helpful for our advancement, but still they are doing something that eventually will, will purify them. So they should be honored. And as I've said a number of times, if you keep a far enough distance from anyone, then you can find some way to respect them. It may have to be over continents for some people, but still you can have some some respect. And if they're, if they're especially if they're, with regard to the topic, if they're chanting the holy name, if we get too close, then then we may find incompatibilities and problems and so forth. But at a distance, so. Everyone who's chanting the holy name of Krishna should be honored. And Kanishtarikaris, beginners, neophytes, they're chanting. So, all are honorable, but they'll be honored in different ways. So it is important to know the distinctions between the, the neophyte, the intermediate, and the advanced devotee. 
so that we can properly honor them. At the same time, it's also important to note that the, the, the way in which these divisions of devotees have been talked about are, as all things spiritual, not comprehensive. There's more to be said about it. So, for example, a famous article was once published in the Sajanatoshini many, many years ago, after the disappearance of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. A devotee wrote there that there is Kanishta Kanishta, Madhyam Kanishta, Uttam Kanishta. Means a, a neophyte neophyte, an intermediate neophyte, a superlative neophyte. And then there's a Madhyam Kanishta. A, a low-grade intermediate, and a madhyam madhyam, an intermediate intermediate, and an uttam intermediate, a superlative intermediate, and then, of course, a, a kanishta uttam, a neophyte superlative, and a madhyam uttam, uh, intermediate superlative, and an uttam uttam, superlative superlative. And one of the, if, if you really think about it, the implication of writing like that was that there are lots of nuances here, and there, there is a overlapping and, and so forth. And so one verse we have in, in Bhagavatam, one verse we find of Rupa Goswami and Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, uh, well, three verses in Bhagavatam, three in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, defining these three divisions. Both of them define it a little bit in, in a different way. In Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, they're defined in terms of learning, scriptural understanding, and faith. And in Bhagavatam, they're defined a little differently by describing different characteristics of those three divisions of neophyte, intermediate, and uttam. So there's more to be said about it, and there's overlapping and so on and so forth. So, that has to be taken into consideration. But in general, it's good to know though, what they say there. For example, Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu Rupa Goswami explains that those whose faith is komal, is, is tender, and who um, shastri yukti nahi, they don't have the capacity to put the scriptures together in an insightful way. Shastra Yukti. Now, Shastra Yukti means the ability to, to read the scripture and draw something from it and connect the Bhagavatam verse with the Gita, with the Chaitanya Charitamrita and put it all together and that kind of thing. Uh, kind of a, a scriptural genius, scriptural logic or something like that. They don't have that and their faith is tender. And an intermediate devotee he doesn't have the Shastra Yukti, but he has uh, Dridhashradha, firm faith. His faith is not komal, not tender. Uttamadikari, Shastra Yukti, Sunipun. Nipun means like genius. Sunipun has super scriptural genius. It's not like, it's not referring to learning that he knows so many verses, or she knows so many so many verses and can repeat them and so forth. Shastra Yukti Sunipun. Once Pujapada Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur referred to Sridhar Maharaj as Shastra Nipun, 
It means the scriptural genius, that he could take statements from the scripture and draw meaning from them and shed new light on that, what's being said there. Take the jewel of the verse and show a different facet of it by putting a different light on it and so forth. And here in, I'm citing Chaitanya Charitamrita, which is a Bengali kind of rendering of the verses of Rupa Goswami in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. He says, Shastru Yukti Sunipurna. Not only Nipun, but Sunipun. He's a super scriptural genius. So again, it's not the memory of verses, but he or she has the capacity to talk about this, from, to draw from the scriptures new light and, and speak about it in a very uh, insightful way. It's a kind of a genius. Hmm? And this genius, it doesn't come from intellect, it comes from taste. It comes from the, where reason becomes subordinate to the heart, which is now purified by bhakti. And the heart is leading and, and tasting. And so a kind of a super kind of reasoning capacity comes out of that. That we're always, always defending the faith, which is what runs through all three of the levels in terms of Rupa Goswami's uh, definition. Degrees of faith. He's by Shastra Yukti Sunipun. By this he's defending the faith, protecting the faith not only of himself, but of others. Speaking from Shastra in such a way as to, up, to grow the faith of others, to nourish it. So, this is Bhaktila Samrita Sindhu. And in, in Bhagavatam, then, the neophyte is described as, uh, in an in interesting way, the neophyte has respect for the deity of Krishna, but has no respect for the devotee of Krishna. A devotee has told him, this is Krishna, you should pay respect to him. So you're paying respect to the deity, but then he's ignoring everything else the devotee says, not realizing that, oh, how I found out that that was Krishna, was through the devotee, maybe I should respect the devotee and hear from him. So, this is obviously a very kind of classic explanation, but a Kanishtadikari is not, not, a neophyte is not limited to that, because you respect devotees, but you're also Kanishtadikari, right? Well, we were actually wondering at the Jayadama meeting if we could be classified even as Kanishtadikari as something... Lower. Lower. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to think like that. It's good to have a uh, sometimes that type of a insight into the whole affair that makes everything bigger, and sometimes it may be discouraging to do that also. So you have to find a balance. But but anyway, in terms of this Bhagavatam explanation, the classic example would be that I've had that experience of a devotee is giving a, a discourse explaining the Bhagavatam. Everyone is listening with rapt attention. Even the deity is listening. The deity is there, curtain is open, listening to the talk. And some Hindu gentleman comes in with his whole family and steps over people and ignores the class and goes to the front and offers some prayer to the deity and puts a rupee in the box, donation box, and, and, and walks out. So that's kind of what the Bhagavatam is talking about. Of course, it can be extended too in so many ways. He respects the deity, respects Krishna, but but not the devotee. Doesn't doesn't really understand that the Krishna is more present in the 
advanced devotee than in the form of the deity. The deity should listen there. It doesn't doesn't come under the guidance of a particular devotee. Or he he likes the guru, but won't listen to anybody who's close to the guru. i got to hear it from Gurudev only. Only then I'm going to accept it. This is another expression of... He comes for the kirtan, but as soon as the talk begins, which explains what the kirtan is about, then which he's not aware of, and he leaves. It's just coming for the music of the kirtan, something like that. But another way to think of it, the Kanishtadakari, is that he, he or she is not interested in making advancement because the way to make advancement spiritually to become a devotee is to attach oneself, as I said earlier, to another devotee, to hear from This is the fire. If you're going to cook, cooking is gradual, but the produce, the vegetables, have to be on the, st- on the fire. Otherwise, there's no meaning to saying it's cooking gradual. The fire in bhakti is the association of advanced devotees. You have to be in that company as much as possible. This will call your progress, your advancement. It's a contagious type of disease, this bhakti. So you have to meet a carrier and, be, and, and catch the disease. And get the, it's like a cancer, but it's contagious cancer. So if you're not interested in the devotee, then you're not interested in making progress because you can't be interested in the devotee and not make progress. He will or she will make sure you making you're making progress and push you, and that this is for her business. As, uh, in relation, the advanced devotee, an intermediate or superlative devotee, in relation to the kanishtadikari, how they will honor that devotee by helping that devotee to make progress, by giving instruction and guidance and so forth, showing mercy to them. That is how the advanced devotee will, will relate to them. We may need to keep a distance from someone who's like a super Kanishtadikari because not helping us, and they're not interested in advancement. We may be interested in advancement, and to that extent, we are honoring the devotee, and we're moving away from the Kanishtadikari standing. Interested in making progress, this is really this, what defines the, the Madhyama, serious about making progress, maybe identified with the stage of nishta also, where many unwanted habits are retired and so forth. But to the extent that we are really concerned about making progress, we are moving in that direction. Madhyamadikari is described in Bhagavatam as having fourfold discrimination. He cultivates love of God and he premo matri kripo peksha Yakaroti Samadhyama. Prema, Maitri. So he cultivates love of God. He makes friends with devotees who are on a similar level as himself. Kripa, to neophytes and, and to those who, who don't know about Krishna. Innocent people, ignorant. He shows mercy to them. And Prema Matri Kripa Apeksha. He gives up. He avoids the association of people who are inimical to Krishna consciousness. Hari Priya asked a question about how, what's this stuff about avoiding the association of non devotees? I saw on the Tatavivek, I, I wrote something recently. I don't know if you got a chance to read it. You may have been in transit, but different devotees offered some nice points. Virgu said some nice things and quoting the scriptures and so forth, but um, I thought of it in another way that may be helpful, and I quoted this verse. 
from Bhagavatam, which says that how the, the devotee concerned about making advancement, which means what? See, the characteristic of the Madhyam is, is discrimination, the intermediate devotee. The, the neophyte devotee is not characterized by having good discrimination. It means they're not really using their intelligence in Krishna consciousness to make progress, thinking it out, and um, discriminating what's good association, what's not good association, what's favorable, what's not favorable. That's not their guiding, guiding light. So the Madhyam is characterized by discrimination. With regard to association, people who are like him, on his level he makes friends with them, camaraderie, so there be strength in, in numbers. Those who are ignorant, which is maybe neophyte devotees, or most people, innocent, ignorant, they don't know about Krishna, they may be doing all types of non-devotional things, but we might find that very soon they can become devotees also. So we don't avoid them, but we associate with them and we try to offer them um, what we know about Krishna consciousness when the occasion arises. But then there are people who are inimical and they should be avoided, those types of people. Still, we may not be able to avoid some people who are inimical because they might be our parents. We might be living at home. <laughs> Then what to do? Then we have to be a little, little patient, like Prahlad, <laughs> a little tolerant. What did Prahlad do? He still lived at home. What other choice does a five-year-old boy have? But he, he prayed for his father's advancement. His father was very demonic. So it's a long story in the Bhagavatam. He prayed for his advancement and tolerated it. So he didn't associate with him means he didn't he didn't embrace his ideas, his thoughts and and so forth. So at any rate, the Madhyama is characterized by this kind of discrimination. He or she is interested in making progress. So he's they're careful who to associate with, who not, how to associate with whom and whatnot. And with the deity I associate for cultivating love. With equal with devotees of a similar status, I cultivate friendship with them and share, exchange thoughts that will encourage us to make progress. New people that come, I associate with them, I honor their interest in Krishna consciousness and try to foster it by my example and, and, and by sharing the teaching with them. And when I find that people are inimical, then I, I think, have a nice day. We'll avoid them. And then the Uttamadikari is described in Bhagavatam, also in terms of kind of lacking discrimination, like the neophyte. But this is a good kind of lack of discrimination. Why? Because he sees Krishna in everything, in everyone. The Madhyamadikari will be very careful where he or she eats or not, for example. He only want to take food that's cooked by Vaishnavas as far as possible and be concerned about that kind of thing. Yudhamadikari, then he will think, if someone offers him some food, he will think, oh, Krishna has sent his mercy. This is Prashad. <laughs> he doesn't see anyone moving independently of, of Krishna. He sees Krishna in all things, all things in Krishna. Like this. So, these are the, you know, the basic overview of these ways in which these different levels of devotees have been defined. We should be familiar with those. And then look at it as a kind of a flexible thing. And, and there's overlapping 
in this. And then honor devotees accordingly. It's important to know so that we can appropriately know how to appropriately associate with the devotees. Now, I, would, I don't imagine that in Jaiva Dharma anything other than those verses has been drawn upon to, in order to give the explanation. Bhakti Vinodhaka follows, follows that, that lead. So I don't know why you would think yourself less than a Kanishtadikari. There was something like who chants without offense. Or some, like the yeah. Kanishtani, something like chants yeah. the holy name without offense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, we'd have, we would have to look it up. But, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think it was connected to, to something else. Yeah. Yeah, otherwise. Generally, then Kanishtarikari will chant with, without a desire to be offensive. Whereas some people may chant and could care less whether they're offensive or, or not and make fun of the devotees and, and so forth. So, may desire not to make offense, but may make offense. That's inevitable. Yes? How can we get Ratsaprema? What is the right method? Attain it. How to get Brajaprem? What is the method to attain it? The supreme method that has been given by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. The best way. Hmm? Well, the supreme way. The best way. The best way to get that that has been given by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and all of his followers, what has actually been explained and underscored more than anything else throughout all the Bhakti Shastras of the Goswamis, of Viraj Goswami, and from what comes from the mouth of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu himself. Like, for example, in Shikshastakam, the supreme method is Nam Sankirtan. That is the supreme method. Is that the only way? Yeah. Let me explain it to you like this. Do you think that you can get Krishna Prem, Praja Prem, and chant Hare Krishna offensively. No. Therefore, if you want Krishna Prem, then don't you think it is in your interest to focus on chanting purely? Yes. Now let me ask you this. If you chant purely Krishna Nam, do you think you're going to get Krishna Prem? You're not sure. I cannot attain the highest call when I'm doing offenses. No, I know that. But what I'm saying is if you chant purely, if you chant with offenses, you cannot get Krishna Prem. So you have to chant purely to get Krishna Prem. If you chant purely, then you can get Krishna Prem, right? From chanting. So this is the supreme method. Now there may be auxiliary activities, for example, when you chant Hare Krishna without offense, and then you develop a taste, ruchi, for, for bhakti, for hearing and chanting, this becomes food, not medicine anymore. Now the medicine has become food. This is, when you come to this stage, then you're attached to these activities, just like you think, what am I going to eat today? And then when will we chant? And you go to bed and you have to take a little rest and you're waiting to wake up so you can go to the Mongol Arctic and, 
like this, when they have some ruchi, it becomes food. And then you think, oh, it's time to eat. You have to stop chanting. Too bad. So when you have some ruchi, then some inner life, when you don't want anything outside, how did Chaitanya Mahaprabhu describe ruchi? In a negative way. Do you understand? He said, who has no taste for followers, necessity for relationship, who has no uh, perceived necessity for, for wealth, for power, for knowledge, kavitam, has no interest in anything of the world. He described Ruchi like this to help us understand the way that we can we can see it, really, in the person, and certainly in ourselves. No, no interest in that, but attachment to Krishna. Not Krishna, but Krishna Bhakti. Hearing, chanting, and so forth. When it comes to that stage, then the inner world starts to come alive. And then you can successfully meditate on Krishna. So this smaranam then becomes auxiliary to chanting, to namsankirtan. It comes to assist the namsankirtan. It's not an independent method, but it comes about naturally as a result of the chanting. Therefore, the great Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthi Thakur said what? Kirtana prabhave smarana svabhave. Kirtana prabhave, by the power and force of kirtan, smaranam, which is meditation, upon one's smaranam svabhave, upon one's inner nature, will come about naturally by the force of kirtan. Not so, what I'm saying to you is not that we will take Sankirtan and put that over here and think, well, that's just for saving the people, helping people, but I want to go to Golok. So I will sit quietly, privately, and I will do Smarnam. Lushtaman, tumikishir vashnav. Saraswati Thak says, oh, who thinks like this? He says, my dear mind, what kind of Vaishnav are you? Vaishnav what kind of Vaishnava are you? And you go like this, you put aside Damsan Kirtan to go and sit in a solitary place in the name of Brajbrahim. But really you have all kind of dirty things in your heart. You still have desire for the world in so many ways. You are just imitating advanced devotees. That's all. He says, don't do like that. If you want to become qualified for that kind of life, then don't avoid Namsan Kirtan. No, embrace that. And by the power of that, you will become qualified and it will come naturally. Namsan Kirtan, again, I said earlier, we hear that the Leela of Krishna is not different from Krishna, right? So you may think, well, why, I, why I should I do Namsan Kirtan? I would just meditate on the Leela. But we don't hear that the Leela is more merciful than Krishna, like the name is more merciful than Krishna. That's why you should not avoid Namsan Kirtan. Because this is the divine dispensation of Kali Yuga. Krishna comes in that form. So by taking advantage of Namsan Kirtan, then naturally you become qualified for that inner life. And then Smarana Subhava, in a natural way that will develop, not in an artificial way, and certainly not in the way that displaces the emperor 
of Nam Kirtan that rules over all attendant types of practices of bhakti in Kali Yuga that has been brought by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu who is Bhujandananda and Krishna from Rajaloka himself coming. This is the method he gave. And we find it that in his own life's example he did Namsan Kirtan. And the Namsan Kirtan reached a certain point in his life that the inner life took over. And the outer life of distributing the Nam to others was retired. The inner life took over. But that was also not without Kirtan. That inner life of that meditation will be fostered by Namsan Kirtan. This is the supreme method. You can study any book, Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, you can study Chaitanya Charitamrita is very clear on this. Brihat Bhagavatamrita, very clear. Bhagavatam, over and over again, from beginning to end. Bhagavatam, as far as Abhideya, Tattva, the means, the path, extols Namsan Kirtan from beginning, middle, and end. First verse of Bhagavatam speaks of Kirtan. The last verse of Bhagavatam, the Bhagavatam retires with this. Yatra Sankirtanam something. Du Sankirtan. This is most effective in Kali Yuga. Nam Sankirtan. So this is the supreme method. And it will qualify one for other attendant practices that will facilitate that. What did Gopakumar do in Brihad Bhagavatamrita? In Brajloka he did Nam Sankirtan. And that Nam Sankirtan combined with, with Smaran that came by the force of that Kirtan took him to Goloka. It's very clear you can study all these things. So, you should never, never underestimate the power of Namsan Kirtan. And you can, and to think, I will do something else, that will be more important than another practice. And still, your chanting is inattentive. You want to do Lila Smarnam, but what about Nams? You cannot even do Nam Smarnam. What is Nam Smarnam? Nam Smarnam, Smarnam means meditation. So we do Nam Smarnam, what is that? When we do Japa, you know, on the beads, chanting Hare Krishna, this is a form of Nam Smarnam. This is the beginning. Jiva Goswami has made this clear in Bhakti Sandarbha, also in, in his commentary in Bhagavatam, I think maybe somewhere in third canto. He's shown first Nam Smarnam, then Rupa Smarnam, then Guna Smarnam, then Leila Smarnam. So first you must become effective in Nam Smarnam, means must, you must chant attentively. Because if you cannot chant attentively, then you're chanting but not paying attention, then you're not free from offense. So how to get over that? You have to keep chanting, of course, gradually, and, and then lead a lifestyle that's conducive to that kind of attentive chanting and so forth. You can't be doing so many things 23 hours and then one hour sit down and think that you'll chant attentively. You have to be your life orbit around this the hub of your spiritual practice, the, the main practice of which is chanting the name. So when first you try to do Nam Smarnam attentively, if your mind is wandering doing Japa, then how are you going to do Lila Smarnam? Lila Smarnam, that is, that is there. That is, this Smarnam in general is there, but it comes naturally from Kirtan. Therefore, it is universally concluded by all the charges in all the scriptures that Namsan Kirtan is the supreme path and it would take one to Goloka. Is that something different than you, what you've learned? There's not any new thing. Did you want some new thing? No, no. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yes. Uh, you said that inattentive chanting is offensive chanting. And if you chant attentively, then you chant without offense, right? Yeah. But is it possible for, for like some advanced jnani or something to like do nam smaran uh, attentively? Yeah, that's possible, but he may have a desire for liberation. Right, so it's not defenseless. It's uh, different. It's um, it's not the path of Shuddha Bhakti. Mm. Hmm? So, Shuddha Maharaj once described that kind of chanting as being very um, unpleasant to Krishna's ears. Chanting with an expressed desire for, for mukti, for liberation, to make Krishna disappear forever. Chanting for that purpose. What else? Maharaj, uh, why is Yamuna River a very important matter towards Vishnu? What is the most important transcendental point in this subject? In which subject? The Jamuna River. What is the significance of the Jamuna River? Why is it important for Vishnu? For Vishnu Bhaktas? Or for Vishnu? Oh. Lord Vishnu himself. They warned me about you. (laughs) 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 Well, of course, Vishnu is interested in the Jamuna because it's made of the perspiration of Krishna. That's why the Jamuna is black. Did you know the Jumuna is a black river? No. Yeah. And so is it, is it black? Mm-hmm. And have you ever seen a picture of the of Jamuna Devi? She's black, like Krishna. So the melting of Krishna in ecstasy or the perspiration, another way of talking about it, has become the Jamuna. And so Vishnu, he likes Krishna. Krishna is important to Vishnu because that's his source. Even though that Vishnu very much wanted to have the darshan of Krishna, and he went to great trouble to get the darshan of Krishna with Arjuna, mentioned in Bhagavatam, he created a whole intrigue on earth by stealing the sons of one Brahman. As soon as the son was born, it disappeared. It disappeared. And so uh, the Brahman was approached Arjuna and said, you know, you're a warrior, you're supposed to protect religious people, but I'm religious, but my, my sons are disappearing somehow or other. So you have to find them. So he tried to find them, and he was unsuccessful. And He said, if I can't find them, I'll give up my life. So Krishna would not allow him to give up his life. So Krishna said, come with me, we'll find them. And they went to Vishnu Loka, the abode of Vishnu. And there were all the sons. And Vishnu said, oh, I stole them because I wanted to get the darshan of Krishna and his friend Arjun. So this is one example in the Bhagavatam that is there to teach us that that Krishna is the source of Vishnu. So Vishnu has some regard for his source. And when it appears in the form of the river of Jamuna, then as well. And also, of course, then Jamuna is facilitating so many of the pastimes of Radha and Krishna and Gopas and Gopis throughout Vrindavan. You know, you if, if you want to have a rural community, then you have to find a body of water also, ideally. You need water. 
to live, to grow, to raise your animals, and, and so forth. So they settled along the banks of the Jamuna. So when you build a, a community along the banks of the river, that naturally the river becomes dear to you in, in so many ways, practical ways. You know, in Indian culture, everything is worshipped, but the basis of that often is, is because it has a very practical utility in the lives of the people, like the cow is worshipped. So people in the West think, what is that? They're worshipping cows instead of God. But in the rural life in India, the cow is so important. She provides so much for so little, for little grass. She gives so much. And so they have regard. They see her as like a godsend. Without the cow, where would it be? Without the bull, we couldn't till the field. Without the cow, we wouldn't have milk, butter, and yogurt, and so many things. Even from the dung of the cow, they can build houses. and Everything from the cow is very, very useful. And the price for that is just a little grass, which grows freely along the banks of a river. So as the cow becomes dear, the land becomes dear, the, the, the river becomes dear also. So because it's dear to Krishna and Krishna's devotees, and facilitates their pastimes, then naturally Vishnu will have regard for her. Now, did you mean why does Krishna have regard for the Jamuna? Or did you mean Vishnu? You said Vishnu, so I answered it. I answered it like that. Why does Krishna have regard for the Jamuna? Well, as I say, it facilitates so many of his pastimes. So, Yamuna River is very important matter to Lord Vishnu because he can remember then Lord Krishna himself. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah. Just like Lord Shiva likes the Jamuna. He said, I wish I could retire along the banks of the Jamuna and sit there where I can constantly remember the pastimes of Krishna. Lord Shiva said that in the form of Shankarajarya. He wrote like that. Now, it's said if you bathe in the Jamuna, you can get Prajaprem. <laughs> <laughs> so you might want to run there and do that. <laughs> Those things that are said like that means that it's possible. It has happened. But there's a standard method that you should not avoid. <laughs> you should rather embrace that, even though it may take some trouble. When time for meditation comes, when your heart is purified, then there will be so many internal practices. But first be concerned with chanting purely. Then that meditation will come about naturally, and you'll have qualification to do it, to follow in the footsteps of the Brajabhasis. How will you follow in their footsteps? You have to have a body like theirs. So where will you get that? Where will it come from? Where will you get it? It's already existing not something that's manufactured. It's already existing. It has to be revealed. It has to be uncovered. So, by chanting it will be revealed. Naturally. Kirtana prabhavi smarana sabhavi is the emphasis of our parampara. And as it's revealed, then you will know what to do. The scripture will also be there to help you. Guru can help. Oh, so we probably should stop there.